Hello, and welcome to today's special episode of Real Talk, UC San Diego's Policy Solutions Podcast. I am today's anchor, Alex Wyckoff. Let's begin by talking about what happened in Georgia this morning. With 98% reporting, AP has called the Purdue-Ossoff race for Democrat John Ossoff and the Leffler-Warnock race for Reverend Raphael Warnock. I'd like to take a moment to congratulate John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock on their Senate race victories. With this, the incoming Biden administration, set to swear in on January 20, will come in with Democratic majorities in both chambers of Congress, though it will be the thinnest majority in history. We will talk more about how that affects the incoming Biden admin and what it can get done in another episode. For today, we're going to focus on the unprecedented events happening today at the Capitol, how we got here, and what is next from here. As I record, it is currently 4.44 p.m. A few hours ago, hundreds of rioters and insurrectionists stormed the Capitol, including both chambers of Congress, the Senate and the House, and occupied the building. Congress was forced to evacuate, and Vice President Mike Pence, as well as Senate President Pro Tempore, Chuck Grassley, a Republican of Iowa, escaped to secure locations. One woman was shot and killed by law enforcement. Currently, the doors to the Senate and House have been locked and barricaded, with reports of some members of Congress praying for all of this to come to an end. The insurrectionists have been rioting violently, breaking windows, looting the building. Many are carrying firearms, and a number of improvised explosive devices have been found on the scene and in the building. Police are now trying to disassemble them, and the bomb squad has disassembled a number of devices already. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, a California Republican, confirmed that shots were fired within the Capitol building. The FBI and National Guard were called down to assist Capitol Police, who were overwhelmed and their barricades swarmed and overcome. Let's start with what's immediate. The situation has begun to stabilize, it seems. Congressional leaders are set to reconvene at 8 p.m. EST, or at least they have expressed this as their goal, to resume the certification process of electoral countage votes. President-elect Joe Biden gave a speech a few hours ago where he indicated that he does not fear for his own security and that the situation is something that can and will be handled. So let's talk about how we got here. How we got here begins before Trump. It begins with the takeover of the Republican Party by pundits of misinformation and by farther-right extremists. In 2008, Barack Obama and Democrats swept, taking the presidency and both houses of Congress. Not long after that, Republican leaders got together because they realized that in order to stay relevant in politics, they needed a new strategy to overcome this new wave of blue enthusiasm. And they turned to an unlikely source. They turned to the power of niche journalism, 
seeing the success that social media and modern media technology had given to the Obama campaign, Republicans took a try at it. They weaponized niche news such as Breitbart, such as The Blaze, and such as Fox News. All organizations that are not licensed to be legitimate, credible news organizations. They are blogs and opinion tanks at best. They are not certified to be giving you accurate news coverage. But that's what they're trying to do. They're giving you news coverage. Though accurate is not a word that they would be using here. Over the last 10 years, since these became more and more popular, we've seen a lot of information, misinformation. The Barack Obama birther conspiracy, even though he did show his birth certificate, and had plenty of evidence to show his activity in the States until now. Propaganda peddlers such as Dinesh D'Souza, though they've been arrested, have continued to put out high-grossing films such as America, World Without Her, and 2016 Hillary's America, where they have depicted Democrat agendas falsely as radical socialist agendas seeking to take away all guns, even though no Democrat has seriously suggested that and no such policy ever took place, and more guns were sold under Barack Obama than any prior president, and They've tried to cast Democrats as being against capitalism and free market economic principles. An absolute falsehood, particularly if you look at the platforms of every Democrat running. The sole Democrat who ran in the primaries, who identified as anything remotely resembling communism or socialism, was Senator Bernie Sanders, who identifies as a democratic socialist, which is not in and of itself real socialism either. Democratic socialists tend to favor the capitalist system with socialist regulation keeping it in check. Now, that hasn't stopped the misinformation campaigns from taking place. They've come rampantly over the last few years. And now I want to jump into the era of Trump. In the era of Trump, that misinformation found its way into every nook and cranny of American politics, including our elections. And it found that, and it found its way in years ago. In 2016, then-candidate Trump lost in Iowa in the primary against Ted Cruz. At the time, he suggested that he lost because of election fraud, that the system was rigged against him to favor Ted Cruz. This, of course, was nonsense. And in May of 2017, President Trump, by executive order, created a commission to study fraud in elections. That commission ended in January of 2018 with no findings. They did not find any evidence to suggest that such fraud was taking place in the United States. Charles Herndon, then White House Director of Information Technology, said in a sworn court declaration filed in federal court at the time, that the Voter Fraud Commission, quote, did not create any preliminary findings. Despite this, the voter fraud narrative has been going on for many years now. Long before the election took place, the president baselessly claimed that there was going to be massive 
fraud. We've debunked this quite a few times. The Brennan Center, a slightly left-leaning research organization, has aggregated over a dozen studies to establish the figures for election fraud and voter fraud. For those who don't know, election fraud is when an election is fraudulent because it has been manipulated. And voter fraud is different in that it creates an election that is not accurate because of fake or illegal voters. The Brennan Center has studied both. And in the U.S., voter fraud, which President Trump alleges is what happened, at its highest is said to be 0.02%. That is its highest estimate. Apply that to the 2020 election, you get a little over 35,000 instances of voter fraud. That's enough to turn over one or two of the swing states. Certainly not enough to overturn the election. And that statistic would be, would be nationwide. And thus would not overturn any of the swing states, most likely. Now, that's the highest. The actual number, according to the Brennan Center, is 0.0025%. So we're saying about just over 4,000 fraudulent voters nationwide. At, at that number, you can't even overturn a single swing state, let alone an entire election. The Heritage Foundation, which generally sides with conservatives and with Mr. Trump, and have claimed that mass voter fraud is rampant in this country, have been studying voter fraud for the last 19 years. In recent elections, they were able to find only 1,071 instances of voter fraud of any sort. Whether you use the 3,000 number from the Brennan Center or the 1,000 number from the Heritage Foundation, it's not enough to affect any of the swing states. It's not enough to flip the election. There's also been claims by President Trump and his allies that mail-in voting is less secure. This is not true. The verification process is the same, and in fact, mail-in voting sometimes has greater restrictions. There are a number of requirements across all 50 states plus D.C., including a requirement of a voter signature on a sworn statement or affidavit, personal information, such as a driver's license or birth date, and a verification of identity via signature match. Trump's Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, openly said that the U.S. Postal Service was, quote, fully capable, end quote, of handling mail-in voting even during the coronavirus pandemic. There have been claims that voting machines falsely changed Trump votes to Biden votes. This is incorrect. The affidavit provided by Ms. Sidney Powell, one of the Trump team lawyers, isn't even about the 2020 election. It's about the 2013 election in Venezuela. Ms. Powell also claims that the companies Smartmatic and Dominion are responsible for this supposed fraud. Smartmatic was actually not used in any of the states where President Trump is alleging voter fraud, nor was it even used in any swing states. Smartmatic ceased operations in Venezuela in 2018 as well. 
It also does not, as Mr. Trump has claimed, own Dominion. Smartmatic was only used in one county, and that is L.A. County. In Georgia, where Dominion is used, Republican state officials did commission a voting audit, and all of the swing states by this point have hand-tabulated all of the votes to confirm the veracity of the machine's counting. The audits and the hand-counting all found that Joe Biden is still the winner of the 2020 election. In Georgia in particular, they did find 5,800 votes that had gone uncounted due to late arrivals or systematic errors. Of those, 1,400 were uncounted for Mr. Trump, indicating that even had they been counted, the result is unaffected. Mr. Biden was actually the one to lose out by not having these votes counted. This number, of course, is well within the margin of error for when a state is called on to certify its results. There is always going to be a degree of error. Usually, that's going to be anywhere from a quarter percentage point to maybe 1% in our elections. And that's fine, because we have accounted for it every year, including the year that Mr. Trump won. This election, because the U.S. government took greater precautions compared to 2016, was actually the most secure election in U.S. history. Fraud is unlikely. Virtually impossible. In fact, the president has lost 80 lawsuits pertaining to this. And this gets us back to how we got here. Misinformation. Part of it has been the difference between hearings and actual trials and cases in a court of law. A lot of folks don't know the difference. So here it is, uh, if not a little overly simplified. In a hearing, the goal is for sides to present their arguments to be heard. And generally, this does not lead to any sort of ruling so much as it helps establish what evidence and witnesses can be present in a court and helps establish some of the procedures for how the court will handle it. The president and his allies love hearings. And the reason for this is unlike in a court of law, they are not bound by rules of truth. Lawyers in these hearings will not be disbarred for offering falsehoods, though they will be if they offer said falsehoods in a court of law. Witnesses often will not face consequences for perjury in a hearing, even though they would face such in a court of law. Though Mr. Trump's own lawyers have said in court that they do not allege massive voter fraud and have changed their story many times, changed the story on what they are suing over, changed the story on why they think the election wasn't legitimate, even though they've changed that story many times, they have never once alleged in court the voter fraud that President Trump is talking about. And this is why these hearings have been so vital to them. These hearings, these tweets, these rallies, they are free to deliver these falsehoods. But if you put them in a court of law, they will not be free to do so. And that's why they don't do it. The problem, then, is this, is this misinformation is not fact-checked. It is not fact-checked. It is not come down on by anybody. 
part of that is the pressure on members of the House of Representatives. In 2010, and leading up until now, an awful lot of folks in the House who have two-year terms were primaried successfully by farther-right Republicans who referred to moderates as rhinos, Republicans in name only. This trend has continued under the Trump presidency and gotten more powerful. And because of his popularity with his base, the president has been able to put a lot of pressure on any elected officials who do not kowtow to him. Those who go against him on any issue soon find themselves attacked, primaried, relentlessly, brutally, and many of them lose their seats. This is why Jeff Flake of Arizona had to resign. This is exactly what drove John Boehner and Paul Ryan, former speakers of the House, and Republican superstars out of the limelight. Once, Paul Ryan was thought to be the future of the party. Now his political career is over. Even Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has faced Trump's wrath and been forced to join with Trump. And this is why you see so many members of the House of Representatives backing Trump. They don't want to lose their elections. And they're forced to play a very dangerous game where they toe the line between reasonable politics and trying to follow with Trump's falsehoods. And they'll say things like, we need an honest and open and fair election. But we've had that. We've counted the votes again and again and again in many different ways. And it's the same result every time. It's even worse in the Senate, to be honest. In the Senate, you have people who want to be the president one day, such as Josh Hawley of Missouri or Ted Cruz of Texas. Ted Cruz even ran in 2016 against President Trump. And these people, seeing the power of the president's base, because he is very loved by his supporters, he is. There are millions of them. It's a powerful base. It's a powerful fundraising operation. Anyone who inherits that, whoever is the spiritual successor to Donald Trump, will have a lot of power, and may very well be the de facto leader of the Republican Party as a result. If I was a Republican, I would want access to that base too. And so, in terms of getting access to that base, they have been willing to debase our democracy itself in their pursuit of power and finances and fundraising. And for those whose primary concern is keeping their seat, that makes perfect sense. It's perfectly rational even if it comes at the cost of our democracy. I'm not saying that they're right, nor am I saying that they're justified. What I am saying is that there are very clear, very obvious reasons for what they are doing. Now, can Trump be tried for sedition? Because that's what's happening. This is an insurrection that Trump is calling for. Trump and his team and his supporters are staging a coup against the election against the United States. In fact, John Merkley of Oregon, a senator, posted that had they not been able to save the boxes of electoral votes and paperwork from the Senate floor, then the insurgents would have burned them. Let's be clear about what happened. Congress had to barricade itself and pray and it had to save the ballots. 
if this had gone a little bit further. The insurrectionists were going to murder U.S. representatives. They were going to burn electoral votes and delegitimize the election. They were going to stage a hostile takeover, a coup d'etat, against the United States government. So again, can Trump be tried for sedition? The answer is no. A sitting president cannot be indicted. And here's why. Congress is silent on the issue. They've never taken it up. And they are unlikely to take it up because so many Republicans still place their political fortunes in the hands of the Trump base. So long as that is, it, as that is true, it is impossible for any action on legislation of this nature indicting a sitting president to happen. Now, maybe there could be a push for it successfully during the Biden presidency, but I suspect that won't happen because then Republicans would hypocritically use that to attack President Biden. We all know that to be true. They've been hypocrites many times in recent years with the deaths of Scalia as opposed to Ginsburg, with rules on the Senate floor, with their proclamations of whether or not they would accept election results. We know that they would weaponize this against Democrats. And this is why neither side will take up such a rule. A sitting president cannot be indicted. The Supreme Court has never taken this up. If a court case came before them, they could. But the question is, given what I've just said, that Republicans put their political fortunes in the hands of Trump supporters, and Democrats don't want a new weapon used against them by Republicans during the Biden admin, who's going to make that lawsuit? It's very unlikely. So then, where does this rule come from? It comes from 1973. In the midst of the Watergate scandal that engulfed President Richard Nixon, the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel adopted in an internal memo the position that a sitting president cannot be indicted. This is not a law. It is a policy arising only out of continued tradition, and if Congress or the Supreme Court passed any kind of ruling, they could overturn this. But as I said, politics will keep them from doing so. Trump cannot currently be tried for sedition. Some of his people can. Michael Flynn. Rudy Giuliani. Folks like this could be. Ah, well, maybe not Rudy Giuliani. Uh, I do recall he was just pardoned. And Michael Flynn, I believe he was, he was also pardoned. Uh, depending on the nature of the pardons, perhaps they are now immune. But they could certainly be tried for newer crimes if the nature of their pardon doesn't blank check that. When Trump leaves office, he could potentially face consequences. This is sedition, what he's doing, and he could be tried for it. And that is especially true if he continues to push this narrative, this false narrative of a tainted election. If he continues this post-presidency, he can be tried. Is that likely? It depends. A lot of Democrats will call for it, but Biden may not take up may not take this up. He may seek instead to continue to be a unifier. That's what he ran on. That's what Barack Obama ran on, and that's generally what Democrats try to do in their policies. Contrary to the Republican Party that 
hosts elections on the basis of calling Democrats radicals and radical socialists and saying that they care mostly for their conservative constituencies. Democrats tend to run for everybody, for a much more diverse and unified coalition. Look at the rhetoric between the two and you will see the truth of this. Because of this, Democrats are less likely than one would hope to actually try to try Trump. It also depends on whether he's pardoned. If he resigns before Inauguration Day and Mike Pence has the chance to pardon him, he probably will. Mike Pence is said to have political ambitions of his own for the presidency. This has been well known for some years. It was rumored before Trump was even a candidate. And despite today, despite Mike Pence coming out and saying he does not have the authority to reject electoral certification unilaterally as the vice president, a move that will cost him with Trump's base, he may still pardon Trump just to keep his hopes alive. Trump may try to pardon himself. But legal experts say this would not work and that it would be challenged. And Trump would probably lose the challenge. So how about other U.S. officials, such as in Congress, who helped create this insurrection? Yes, they can be tried. But again, consider the political ramifications of this. It would be very divisive to try all of these people. Certainly, it would lead to more violence, more rioting. And so those who want peace, those who are unifiers, are unlikely to take this up. And the people in power right now are certainly unifiers. Nancy Pelosi is very shrewd, but she does try to work across the aisle. Joe Biden made his career working across the aisle, and in fact, a criticism of him from younger members of the Democratic Party has been that he is too centrist, that he is even center-right. So it is unlikely that any of these uh, lawmakers, that Trump or any of his allies, are tried in any capacity. But let's also be clear that this is an impeachable offense. And it is a state violation. This is especially true of the president's phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State earlier this month. The 2016 Georgia Code, Title 21, Section 21-2-604, parentheses A, parentheses 1, states, A person commits that offense of criminal solicitation to commit election fraud when he or she solicits, requests, commands, importunes, or otherwise attempts to cause the other person to engage in such conduct. This is a crime, and it's punishable by imprisonment for several years. And a pardon does not protect Trump from this statute. He's not immune from state law. What all this boils down to is that we have a very troubling situation where chaotic misinformation, chaotic misinformation that cannot be managed, led us to this point, and political dynamics will prevent us from addressing these problems in the future. We're in a very tough spot. Part of that, as I just said, is the misinformation. It spreads like wildfire, like lightning, across the internet, long before anyone can get a handle on it Thousands have already seen stories such as the Obama birther conspiracy, such as this 
voter fraud nonsense that was rejected in court. And even though, even though, this should have been settled when the Texas lawsuit to the Supreme Court lost, it wasn't because of this misinformation, because of these hearings, and because of this unwillingness by Republican leaders to step up and defend the Constitution. Trump has lost 80 lawsuits. In order to get into court, you need sufficient evidence to demonstrate standing. You need to meet a very basic standard of proof. And Trump has not done this, and that's why the Supreme Court wouldn't hear him. It's not that they wouldn't look at the evidence. They looked at the evidence he had, and it wasn't even enough to get him a trial, let alone actually a ruling that would overturn in his favor. But that misinformation keeps getting peddled. One news network, Newsmax, Fox News. A lot of these have opinion pundits who have actually, because they were sued for their misinformation and for libel law violations, had to make retractions. But one retraction amid weeks and months and years of this narrative. Well, one retraction is not enough. So where do we go from here? As with many of you, I'm not sure. Will Inauguration Day still happen? Yes, though officials have said that there will be heightened security now. How do we fix this system? The answer is I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. If we did, I think we would have solved it already. We need to address issues of social media platforms and mainstream media and misinformation. We need to address issues of over-politization of every issue and partisanship. And we need to address these issues of people getting primaried for not being hardline enough. And that's not a new issue either, by the way. In A Promised Land, his book, Barack Obama mentions that it is common knowledge among election officials, it is common knowledge among election teams, that people are not rewarded in Congress for unifying. In past elections, when Republicans or Democrats tried to be unifiers, they were defeated in their elections, for the most part. This is why Republicans started taking a harder-line stance from Newt Gingrich the Speaker of the House under Clinton, in the 90s onwards. They realized that they won more elections by playing hardball, as Mitch McConnell does today. That's why so many in the Democratic left want to play the same hardball. They have come to learn this reality. And this is a problem that we are going to have to fix. We just don't have a solution yet. Again, will Inauguration Day happen? Yes. Joe Biden will be the president. This is going to stabilize because the U.S. military is a non-political institution that adheres to the Constitution and the oaths that they all swore. Because despite all of the violent Trump supporters out there, that isn't even all Trump supporters, nor all Republicans, nor is it a commentary on what the fabric of 
the American citizenry or this country represent. Let's be clear that these insurrectionists are a minority. They are, even if it doesn't seem that way. But the fact that we've let it get this far is what the problem is. And it almost succeeded. And that is terrifying. That being said, going forward, something is going to have to change. I admit I don't know what it is. I don't know that any elected official or political commentator or expert knows the answer just yet. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to see what the future looks like. We're going to need to prepare because there may be more violence on Inauguration Day. And there may be violence after that. The Trump movement does not die with the end of the Trump presidency, though certainly Mr. Trump will find that he is a lot less relevant as a commentator when he's not the president compared to when he is. Now, I have only a couple things left to say today. I'd like to tell you guys what some of our leaders are saying. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California, who was one of those protesting this election, said, and I quote, We can disagree, but we should not take it to this level. You do not do what is happening right now. People are being hurt, and this is unacceptable. President-elect Biden said, this is not protest, it's insurrection. And he called on Trump to, quote, fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege, end quote. Trump did actually release a video saying he wants this to be peaceful, but at the end of that video, he spoke more about how the election was fraudulent. And it wasn't, let's be clear. But he spoke more about how he feels it was fraudulent, about how he's going to keep fighting. So even though he said be peaceful, he said keep fighting. And earlier today and yesterday, he did encourage these people to swarm the Capitol. He did. And that is key, is that he intentionally wanted this to happen. And that is impeachable. It is a removable offense. He could be removed from office, even with just two weeks left. Will that happen? No. But legally, yes, it could. Others have also spoken. <sighs> Sorry, I had to take a moment. Uh, just because I'm, I'm a little dumbstruck myself, uh, to be honest with y'all. Senator from Indiana... Todd Young, a Republican, said he would not vote against affirming Biden's victory, and that's because he was bound to follow the law. I took an oath under God, he said. Under God. Do we still take that seriously in this country, he asked. And a lot more has been said. Um, a lot more has been said. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that it was anointed to the highest level off government, but cannot, however, deter us from our responsibility to validate the election of Joe Biden. 
Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. We have got to stop this, Mr. President. You have got to stop this. The election is over. Call it off. Senate Republican Mitt Romney of Utah called this an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Ben Sasse, a Republican senator, described the Capitol as being, quote, ransacked while the leader of the free world cowered behind his keyboard, end quote. Republicans and Democrats, with rare bipartisanship, agree on this, that this was too far, that the president did something he shouldn't have. And I think most Americans agree on this too, though there's a, a subset that do not. I know some of them myself, actually, um, have had a lot of, <laughs> uh, let's say, discussions today. I don't know where we go from here. And we've come to the end of this podcast and the information that I'm going to provide for you today. Uh, in subsequent days and weeks, we will release more podcast episodes and some articles to our blog about the inauguration, about today's historic events, and we'll provide as much information as we can about all of these political proceedings. So keep tuning in to the podcast, keep tuning into the blog to stay informed. Uh, I would also recommend some pretty great news sources. Uh, 538 is especially excellent. NPR, though often accused of being left-leaning, is very thorough, and I would recommend them as well. I would not recommend the likes of CNN or NBC or ABC. I would not recommend Fox News, nor the Wall Street Journal, nor any niche journalism such as Vox or Breitbart, such as Huffington Post or The Blaze. We need news sources that fact-check very seriously. And that's why I recommend 538, BBC, NPR, and a few others. Though, to keep all your news in one convenient place, I was recently shown a website called Jingle Tree. That's jingle, as in jingle bells, and tree, as in trees. Jingle Tree. Google that. It's a great singular hub that aggregates all the news from all sources, or at least American news from American sources, together. It's very, very excellent for keeping up with not just politics, but everything. With that said and done, please, please share this podcast episode with as many people as you can. I know most of our listeners are from... UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy, uh, and from UCSD as a whole. And a lot of you are more informed than the general populace because this is the work you do. This is the stuff you pay attention to. And a lot of folks don't know a lot of this stuff. So please, share this for the purpose of informing. And if you don't want to share this, at least please share what information you come across, especially from the news sources that I've recommended today. I'd like to end us on a quote from The Dark Knight by Chris Nolan. It's a, it's a Batman movie. It's a really famous quote, and I'm a big fan of it. Remember 
that the night is always darkest, just before the dawn. But the sun will rise. I do believe that. I believe that quote. But to diverge a little from the quote, that's not automatic. The sun doesn't just rise by itself. Not when it comes to stuff like this. We need to do it. It's up to us. It's up to us to be better informed. To more thoroughly vet facts when we learn them. To look at multiple news sources from all angles. And I know that's difficult. It really is. Politics is hard to keep up with when you've got work, you've got a family, you've got your life to live. But if we're going to have a successful democracy and this experiment in America is going to continue, we need to be better informed. We need to work to promote compassion and kindness. We need to work for each other. And we need to be willing to listen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Talk. Once more, I'm Alex Wyckoff. Godspeed to all of you. And frankly, at this time we need this. We need God to bless the United States of America. Thank you all. Good night.